Today, we are talking with Robert Augustus Masters. He is a spiritual adept and a psychotherapist of great depth and experience. And I've known this man for a number of years. All his work has influenced all of my work. And this conversation gets right into it in the first 30 seconds. So let's go. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm still John Dupuy, and if this is the first time you've listened to us, God bless. Thank you for showing up. And I have my host and my dear friend, Roger Walsh, my partner in this this venture to try to go deep and bring back treasures for all of us. And it's certainly been working for me thus far. The other gentleman that we have here is Robert Augustus Masters. And let me say a little bit about you from a personal place. I have been a reader of your books and not all of them, but your spiritual bypassing, extremely important for me. And you work on, on shadow and to be a man is a book that I've, I've really loved and given away a number of times. So I always have new editions coming because I have to reorder it. We've also worked together before on our podcast, Integral Recovery. And we had a had a really, really good time and very enlightening. And all the stuff that you've covered and you bring forth has been so useful to me. And sometimes it's like stuff I already kind of knew and figured out, but you really deepen it and clarify it. And it's like, okay, I'm not schizophrenic. Here's another, here's an authority that that's that's been here before me. And and I use it a lot, a lot of your teachings and working with my students and my house here in, in Southern Utah. We filled it full of drug addicts for about eight years and worked with them. And we became a family working on our stuff. And your guidance and your wisdom that came from your books was very powerful and meant a lot to me and my students. And you, if you want me to read, I can read the thing from, from the back of your book to be a man, just to give people a more kind of conventional bio of, of who you are. And Robert Augustus Masters, PhD, is a relationship expert, a psycho-spiritual teacher and guide with a doctorate in psychology. He's the co-founder with his wife, Diane, of the Master Center for Transformation, a school featuring relationally rooted psycho-spiritual work devoted to deep healing and fully embodied awakening. At essence, his work is about cultivating intimacy with all that we are, high, low, dark, light, broken, and whole, in the service of the deepest possible healing, awakening, and integration. Mm. So welcome, welcome, my friend. It's good to see you. Thank you. Gosh, there's so many... uh, so many areas that we can go in. But one thing, Roger, you mentioned you'd read a book by Robert that anyway talked about a DMT experience and a very dark coming out of that. And I just recently found out about that. In fact, one of the times when I was I was writing um, a blurb or something for one of your books or, or, or something about you, very positive, I, I got emails from people saying, oh, he'd been a cult leader and done all these bad things. And, and I was really? And that is interesting to me because I was in a cult for many, many years. And, and while I was at, at times I had positions of responsibility, I was not the leader. 
So I looked it up this morning before this, just as kind of an afterthought. And I saw you talking about that experience. And I was so moved, you know, because it was such an honest condition of what had happened. And and you're a very powerful, beautiful, charismatic, deep guy. And I can see how I've seen those things happen a lot. In our integral world, we've had we've had you know people emerge that have that have done these things, and I'd never heard anybody talk about it the way that you did in that experience, coming out of that DMT experience, very broken, very shattered, and and I've had those experiences too, using uh, mushrooms and other plants, not not lately, but I can relate to that. But how you rebuilt your life and how you yeah. you've come out the other end of that. And from whatever, you know, all I can see from what you've done and what you know, I'll quote Jesus is, wherefore by the fruits, you shall know them. And the fruits that you've been giving to me over the last, I don't know, 20 years now has been beautiful and helpful. So could we talk about that for a while? I just think it's really compelling. Yeah, yeah. Major turning point for my life, probably huge, huge. I was on a runaway train. I was busy being special. I was arrogant, too much power. The whole thing, a lot of good stuff in there too, but it was mixed up with a lot of bullshit, a lot of happy stuff. And when I had that experience with the it was five methoxy DMT, not just stronger than DMT, I, I took it with a lot of arrogance. The first puff I took, some people in my community at that point, my students said, You should try this. You can do it. And an hour later, you can be back at work. It took me nine months to recover. And I almost didn't recover. And my first puff, I said, Give me more. I was supposed to knock me unconscious. I didn't care. I'd had many psychedelic journeys before that. I, I handled them all well, I thought. I was kind of a superman to myself, legend of my own mind, all of that. Second puff I took, and I saw the two people with me, I saw them in an aperture like this circle. It was getting smaller and smaller. Ten seconds later, I was completely unconscious of them, external reality, and I was in a bizarrely altered state. Not even alters, almost like reality had dissolved. And I knew I was dying physically. I could tell. And I could not escape. It was like a, a lucid dream, but there's no escape. There's nothing I could do to wake myself up from it because I was already awake in another place. When I eventually came to 20 minutes later, I was told I know I almost died twice. I'd stop breathing for two or three minutes at a time, turn purple. One guy was training CPR. He was pounding my chest. My partner at the time was screaming my name. I was aware of none of that. I just knew I was dying physically, and I didn't feel like it was my time. But I, what could I do? I just, I was pure witness, but I was also in a state of extreme terror and expansion. And like, and I was having seizures too. Apparently, I found out later. So I came out of that. I didn't believe what I was told that I had almost died, and. The next day I got up, go for a run at the beach. I was in San Luis Obispo area and I started to feel incredibly disoriented. I looked at my legs. They weren't, didn't even look human. I was hearing voices in a way that was extremely fast and scary. I got back and I knew I was in serious trouble and I didn't sleep for a week. I had a well-known psychiatrist I knew fly up check me. I said, Oh, you had a shamanic breakthrough. You're doing great. I'll just give you some, maybe give you some Audubon. He didn't get where I was at. I finally had to go to a hospital. I almost faked my own sanity so I wouldn't have to be institutionalized. And I spent the next six to nine months in this 
profoundly disoriented state. I knew I was insane. I wasn't fully insane because I knew I was insane. And the community that surrounded me, I couldn't run it anymore. I felt like a different person, like I died. And here I was with this previous incarnation demanding that I step into his shoes. Again, I couldn't do it. So I dissolved the community that summer and began an extremely humbling journey toward who I really am. And that was, that was extremely difficult. I would wake up most afternoons from a nap and I would feel like I'd actually died. And I was, I was just having a, this was a massive hallucination. So I was, I was, I was insane in many ways. No one diagnosed me as having shock. It was a huge shock to my system. And I had a friend later on I met who's an expert in this area. He said, you're, you're, I see shock in your eyes. And I started to work with it more. It was a long process. And very, very humbly. And I suddenly no longer craved the limelight. I craved anonymity. And the teachers I'd had before that who were kind of arrogant, like Adi Da, Rajneesh, I couldn't be with them anymore. I reconnected with Stephen Levine, wrote Ram Das. I knew Ram Das. He said, I've heard of bad trips. Yours is the worst I've ever heard. No big consolation to me, but I, I was grateful to be alive. I was grateful. I'd almost died. And that shifted everything for me. And when later on, I had a, I, I've had a death experiences since then, including a major heart attack, had prostate cancer, diagnosed 2008. I've had a lot come my way, but I kind of felt like these are bonus. This is bonus time. I get to be here. I get to evolve. I get to outgrow what drove me into being a community slash cult leader. I got to outgrow that, which I was so grateful for. So that's it in a nutshell. I mean, there was a, a lot to be said around the process. One thing I want to add is I had to sit in extreme terror every night for month after month. I'd sit there pouring sweat, pure terror, no escape. I knew suicide was no solution. I was still being in the same place. I could feel that. So all I could do was just eventually, eventually, I developed compassion for the terrified me without any dissociation at all. I was just simply sitting there in this state and the terror didn't go away because I was aware of it and was had compassion for the me who was terrified, but it ceased to be so problematic and without willing it. So I became extremely skilled at working with deep fear states, which I've been doing ever since with many people. Yeah. Robert, I, I read your book, uh, I think shortly after you wrote it in 2008 I, or 2005, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, I've, you know, in my role as a professor of psychiatry who's done some research on psychedelics, I've you know, certainly heard of my share of bad experiences, but that was certainly on a par with anything I'd heard in terms of both. Well, I need, no, I need to qualify that because there are some people who just should not be using psychedelics and end up in chronic psychiatric conditions mm -hmm. and yeah. sometimes on locked wards for a long time. So it wasn't the worst I'd heard, was certainly one of the most horrifying and certainly one of the most painful by someone who had done a lot of inner work on themselves. I'd, I'd like to step back and put this in a context because I, I really appreciate your sharing the extraordinary challenges you had with 5-methoxy-DMT because it is now becoming, it's now being hyped as a valuable drug. And, and 
step back again. There seems to be an evolution with the discovery of psychoactive active drug drugs. First, there's someone who discovers it, possibly synthesizes a new chemical, and then often the, it's kept kind of quiet by a small group of really dedicated psychonauts, mm-hmm. inner explorers, mm-hmm. who realize the value of the potential value of the substance, but are also very wary of its both misuse and its the media hysteria and the drug enforcement agency uh, scheduling or legalization that almost always happens. Mm -hmm. So they try to maintain it as as a psychoactive tool, a possibly Mm -hmm. therapeutic Mm -hmm. tool within a small, uh, um, I don't know what to call it, cohort or esoteric group. But then sooner or later it gets out, word gets out, popularization Mm -hmm. occurs, commercialization even, people wanting to make money off it. There's misuse, irresponsible use. The media gets hold of the story. There's a media madness and hysteria about it. And then there's the recognition of the problems that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't the panacea that it was touted as originally. Some people get into real problems. Some people shouldn't be using it. And the casualties are often overblown by the media. And then it's scheduled and made illegal. And in some cases, very valuable psychological, psychiatric tools both therapeutic and uh, research, are thereby lost uh, for decades, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a, there are real lessons to be learned here, and it's rare to have someone like yourself who's done a lot of psychological, spiritual work on themselves who can put this in a context and describe in, in real detail what you went through. And I think this is really important at this time, whereas the, where there's beginning to be this ex- extraordinary hype around this that this is i mean we're hearing almost this is you know this is a, once again a kind of panacea this can mm-hmm. do that and heal this and it's like yes in some cases for some people under the right conditions at the right times etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah. it's there's it, it, just a it's these things are so tricky. They're so powerful. They're so, some of them are so potentially valuable, and some of them are really dangerous when misused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, appreciate. So I wanted to put that in that context. Yeah. I've seen other people have done five MEO, and they're, they seem fine. But I also know people that have distributed it, and I've had some of them come to me for therapeutic help because they were so messed up by it. They didn't have the grounding. The personalization was running rampant. They lost their voices sometimes, and they were told in so many words, it must be something you're not, it's your fault. You're not having a more positive experience, which I heard too. People said, why was it so negative for me? Cause I almost died had seizures, shock, everything. Other people saying this it's the God molecule is incredible. I've had people who were had horrendous experiences just from smoking weed. They were in, they had years of, of disorientation that was horrible for them. Other people have injected 5-methoxy during an ayahuasca journey and seemed fine, but they were probably dissociated in a way that wasn't challenging to them. So I agree with you in many ways. It's a crapshoot. Like, I don't recommend psychedelics to people that work with me. I often tell them the story of how when I was younger and I did peyote mushroom acid, when I stopped, I could be in a lucid dream and I could deliberately take the same drug in the dream and have a very similar experience. I'm just dreaming. And the suggestion of it, my brain took it literally, and I would have a full-blown experience. And I've also done a lot of deep meditation. I've done a lot of cathartic edge work, trauma work. And in the midst 
used to that often. There are openings that are very psychedelic, but the person having them usually ends up feeling very grounded rather than spaced out or lost in it. So it was very sobering for me, incredibly sobering. Because before that, I thought I could handle anything. And this was so, so beautifully humbling. Mm. And that's one of the distinctive things. You turned it painful and overwhelming as it was. You eventually turned it into a teaching for yourself. Yes. Uh, so... So there's a question here because some people don't manage that. I mean, I, I've worked on locked psychiatric units where we've treated, had a number of people who've, who have arrived in psychotic breaks from uh, misuse of psychedelics. And of course, unfortunately, from even more widespread misuse of things like amphetamine or cocaine, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah. So I'm wanting to do several things here. One is just present a balanced perspective here that, you know, these things can be, some of these psychedelics can be extremely valuable for the right person with the right sport at the right time, et cetera, et cetera. And they can be very, very challenging. But you turned it into a lesson. How did you do that? In part, by embracing my ordinariness. I was mm -hmm. busy being someone special or extraordinary before. I had a very thick spiritual resume. Afterwards, I didn't need the resume at all, threw it out, trashed it. And I enjoyed just being ordinary. I had to start work again. I started working just as a psychotherapist in a small town south of Vancouver. Didn't do groups for five years, groups for my forte. I stayed in, in low in the limelight. I didn't publish anything. I stayed very, very quiet. And I went back to school. I went to Saybrook and I was admitted as a doctoral student in the psychology program. And I enjoyed being a student again. And I found my compassion incredibly enlarged towards people. Before, I'd been selectively compassionate when I'd work with people. But afterwards, I felt a sense of my heart bursting open and being very compassionate, still having good boundaries, but very compassionate towards almost everyone, feeling that. Like, may I be compassionate? May I be loving? And that became a, a profound prayer for me, along with gratitude. And it was like a new life. I got a fresh start. I could have missed that. I could have just gone down the tubes, died in that. I imagine what type of death I would have had. I've grown so much since that time. John, you were going to say. Yeah, for, I mean, from my perspective, you know, and I've, I've done psychedelic, not for many years, but I had as, at least as many journeys into hell as I did into the light. You know, it was pretty balanced and uh, very powerful and nothing you would do for fun. But what I'm seeing with you, with, the, with this powerful, horrific experience and timing, it literally saved your soul. Yeah. You know, it's like God knows the world doesn't need another arrogant cult leader, you know, who thinks he's God and putting it out on everybody. Been there, seen that. It's a bummer. And the fact that you came through all of that, and maybe it took all of that, but when I was reading your 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 thing earlier today, which I hadn't got into before, I was I was deeply moved and deeply grateful. And yeah, I don't feel that I know it all. I'm God. Wink, wink, wink. You know, listen to me. Energy at all. I feel you know I'm a man who's been through the fires and been broken and has been put back together as as a real human being that has medicine to give and does it very lovingly and very humbly. It's amazing. Yeah. It was a gift in the roughest possible wrapping, fierce grace with capital, all capital letters. And I didn't 
realize that at the time, but right afterwards, when I was making my way back into somehow making a living, I felt grateful wherever I was. I could be in a tiny basement suite, whereas I'd been the community leader. I had this beautiful home on a Gulf Island in Canada. I had so much privilege. It was all taken away, but not something wasn't taken away. Something was deepened in me. I wouldn't recommend that path for anyone necessarily, but <laughs> I needed to get my ass kicked royally. I really did. Hmm. And Robert, was, as I recall in reading your book, you consulted with a number of people and you really f- didn't feel helped by a number no, I didn't. Of- no, I remember talking to Stan Groff and he, he told me he couldn't close his eyes a week after taking 5-methoxyl. It was just pure horror for him. And he said, best thing you can do is have a bunch of men make a circle around you, hold you down and you try and get up. I said, I've done that type of thing in my therapy work for many years as cathartic practice. I don't need that. I'm losing my sanity. He couldn't help. The psychiatrist I saw wasn't able to help. He was impressed by me, even though I was messed up. He ended up having sessions with some of my students. But I did get out of on from him, which allowed me to sleep. But I found after I, what I still had the old hubris a little bit in that I would only take the minimal amount of it so I could function. Finally, I met a psychiatrist in California who, who understood me more. He says, you need to addict yourself to it. Take it three times a day. Get stable again. Once you're stable, then you can wean yourself off it. So I did that. I, was, I was, took it for two months. Then I weaned myself. And it was, most, it was even more difficult than the original experience in some ways. Weaning myself from this, I took, it took about three weeks to do it, four weeks to do it. I haven't had it since. But I, I suffered. I was. I lost a lot of weight. I was. I was messed up. But I. But I still felt I'm okay in the midst of all this. I'm okay with not being okay. So it sounds as though acceptance and compassion for yourself were really key here. And adopting a non-problematic orientation toward fear mm. under all conditions at all times, no matter how scared I was. To look upon it, I, my image at the time was looking upon it as a broken, frightened little boy. And, mm-hmm. and I would still feel it in my system, but I felt such care for this boy. And I was like that as a child. I had an abusive childhood. Holding him close, that's part one, loving him. Part two was protecting him in a really healthy way. And that, that helped me. If I reframed fear that way, it stopped running the show. And I felt more tapped into all my emotions. It was a whole, whole new start for me. It was quite astonishing. That, that's no small lesson. I mean, that's, a, that's one of the universal challenges for all of us. Uh, fear, mm-hmm. fear of fear is really such a prime reactor yeah. that just sets us going into vicious, painful in some cases, quite destructive, you know, destructive cycle. What it also did for me, Roger, was that it, it, it brought me into extreme proximity to my mortality. Mm. I'd paid lip service to it before in my meditative practice, a young guy, but I didn't really take, let it get into my bones. Now it was, it was in my face. I could feel death everywhere. And I began a practice of attuning to my mortality, which I've done ever since. <laughs> I still do that. I don't find it morbid at all. I, I actually enjoy it. And when you say tuning to your mortality, what exactly does that mean? Feeling it, feeling it, recognizing that I'm going to die and I don't know when I'm going to die and not as an idea, but I feel it in my bones, my marrow Mm. that I'm going to die. And I have to bracket something in here. 2016, 
in the summer, I had a massive heart attack out of the blue. I seemed very healthy, eating well, meditating, very fit. This was with my wife. I was in our driveway. And I, I knew I had about two or three minutes left to live. That was my sense. I had just this agonizing pain, which I can't describe, was so intense. And she managed to shove some baby ass from my mouth and she called 911. And we lived really close to the, the fire station. So the ambulance was there within five minutes. And an hour later, I'd already had a stent put in my, my blocked artery and I was in bliss. I was in agonizing pain, but I was in bliss in the hospital. And that really shook me up because there was nothing I could do to get out of the heart attack. I was having, I could no meditation technique, nothing I could do. Crying didn't matter. I was almost blacking out the whole time. That kind of was like a bookend for the five month oxy experience because afterwards I felt even more, this is bonus time. I get to be with her. who's profoundly close. I get to do my work. I write more books. I'm here. I'm here. I'm still here. That was the phrase. I'm, st I'm still here, you know, still here and alive. And what a fucking miracle that I had, had this great cardiac unit near me in a town 20 minutes away. And I was, I was a goner. It wasn't like when I've taken risks in deep water and almost drowned a number of times. This was just like, this was it. The doctor said, this is the big one. This is the widow maker. You had just a few minutes to go. You were right. And that brought me even closer to, to death, to where death no longer was a problem. Death was part of life. Death leaves no one out. And I feel very intimate with, with death. I bring that into all my work now with clients, groups, my trained therapists. I bring me this, this. And I'm lucky to have a partner who has the same feeling towards as I do. We know that one of us is going to die first and we're we have no options of self-protection from that. So I'd rather be nakedly vulnerable, be devastated by her death if she goes first and vice versa. That comes out of all this. And that informs everything I do now, everything I do. Yeah, Robert, I had a very, very similar experience. I was uh, meditating and, you know, teaching about it and being shaved. I was coming out of a gym and massive heart attack. I never had a heart attack, but I knew this was a heart attack. So the first thing I thought is my dog is in the hospital, is in the hotel room. We're in Grand Junction, Colorado. So like an idiot, I drive 3.8 miles, having a massive heart attack. And I guess God looks after fools, you know, but I had to make sure my dog wouldn't just be abandoned there. And so I got to the hotel room and I'd made friends with the manager and she loved dogs. And so she was treated like royalty when they knew it was happening to me. But I got, I collapsed on the bed and, you know, Spirit kept me alive, and they came in there in Grand Junction. They have a Catholic hospital. Thank you, guys. St. Mary's, I believe, they have a great cardiac unit, and they did a splint. And, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to live. I, I was pretty sure I was going to die. It was like, okay, God, this is it. This is it. You know, I wasn't, I was just like, okay, all right, if it's my time, you know, thanks for everything. And here we go. It definitely gave me, uh, for the first five hours after the stint, I had a very open kind of, enlightened working through emotional stuff spiritual intellectual it was all yeah, flowing yeah. and about five hours later it was like a mule had kicked me in the chest and that's when uh the fun started yeah. so I, I i can deeply relate to that experience and it's had it's had everything it's before and after everything changed after that experience the relationship with death what you were saying about everything's borrowed time you know i mean this is extra that i'm getting now and and the other stuff this morning, I want to I make this a little bit personal. I was 
before I, I do these things, I meditate and pray for two hours, two and a half hours, something like that. And I've been reading over your book again, Be a Man, and how you talk about turn into the pain. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one of the beautiful teachings that I always taught my students and I, and I practice myself. And so I was feeling incredibly sad. And I said, well, what is it? And I just, instead of trying to feel better, oh, I have a podcast coming up. Let me think some happy thoughts. I'm not, you know, I'm not a basket case when the, the camera starts rolling. I just, the different things. I'd lost my brother to suicide. I'd lost both my beloved parents. Relationships of people I'd been in love with that broke up in a, in a not good way. All the griefs of my life were right there. And I just, okay, here it is. <sighs> God, you said through Robert to turn into the be with this. And and of course, I know that, but I was using just what I'd read in your book to help me through that. When I was reading your thing before this, when you're talking about the cult experience and had you been, I just broke my heart wide open. I just felt such love for you and such gratitude that you were able to turn that around and become the man you are. And I've never seen it happen before. You know, one of the great teachings for me then, that's that's sort of a cornerstone of my work emerged, which is if if there's pain, turn toward it under all conditions at all times. No matter how ugly it is, dark, turn toward it, get intimate with it, get to know it. The other thing you said that I didn't mention earlier, I had a lot of grief during that, those those, uh, nine months, nine months after the five methoxygenes. I cried, sobbed very hard, really hard every day. My heart was broken. It got broken open, but broken, smashed, pulverized. And I felt my grief, my whole life, all the things that were fucked up in my life, all of them. And I started to feel our grief in terms of other people I knew. Then it shifted all of a sudden to the grief again and again and again, the grief of the entire human race. And I still feel that. I mean, I know if people grieve together, there'd be a lot less problems, but there's such an aversion to, we live in a grief phobic culture where we tend to keep it frozen, trying to be strong by keeping it shut down. I mean, if I hadn't been able to cry during those nine months, I would have, I don't know if I would have made it. I mean, cry really hard, right? Just you're ripped open completely and you're a, a mess on the floor. You're not able to suddenly function. You're dysfunctional in a way because you're broken open so much. So I can feel that in you when you're speaking, that, 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 that grief. And it's a beautiful, it's not a negative emotion at all. It's a very beautiful yeah. emotion. So it has a, it's the most spiritual emotion to me. When I, have, I feel my grief, I feel more ripped open to reality. I can feel the trees more. I can feel the sap going up and down them. I can feel the divine. I'm splayed open before the infinite. And it feels wonderful and horrible in some ways too, but it's, yeah. it's beautiful. It's, it's an emotion to describe to it. It'll be called happy, sad. You know, it's one word. There's such beauty here and there's such horror. And thank God we have the capacity to, uh, to be with it in a way that furthers us, deepens us, makes us more valuable to other people. Yeah. When, when uh, my brother, he committed suicide in my house and we were very close. My old brother. How old were you then? Late 30s. Wow. Uh, he had, he'd been in a cult and he'd come out and he was really messed up. And he'd been a very charismatic, just uh, amazing, talented, brilliant guy. And he, he got out of it for a while and did well. Then he went back in. And then on, in the same, like in the same week, I had my dog get run over in front of my office where I was working. Mm-hmm. I found out that my partner was having an affair with a friend of mine. Wow. My brother committed suicide and I got fired from my job. 
you guys playing? And so I, I just like, it, like all my, and I'd been to grad school and studied psychology and it, and it felt like all my tools were like trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon or something. You know, it was just like, there weren't enough. I left, I got in my truck, I took care of the, my brother's body and that ceremony went to the thing. And then I just got in my truck and headed off and I wandered around. And apparently it was four years. People told me later I wasn't keeping track. But uh, about a year or so after that, I was staying with a friend in, in northern Utah. And I was, and all of a sudden it was just like, and I, I cried a little bit, you know, I'd had a few tears and stuff, but just started. Mark, Mark. Yeah. And he came in and I just ripped open. Mm. I just body chugging and, and just this volcanic thing of just grief just poured out of me. Uh, I, you know, I kept that all in for, you know, for a long time, for probably over a year before it finally yeah, hit. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, and that wasn't the end of it, but it certainly was, thank God, it was a step in the right direction. It undammed it. Yeah. 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 yeah amen. Yeah. And it can flow. You know, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful emotion in the sense you can be trusted. It has its own wisdom. And we may fight it. We want to control it. We want to have it go in a certain direction. And when we give ourselves to it fully, there's a liberation in that, and an implicit liberation in saying yes to it. Yeah. Well, you sure got slammed during that period. That's, I guess that's, I needed it. That's an avalanche, uh, right? <laughs> I know. It's like, really? You know, and, and up to then, my life had been pretty good. You know, my parents were alive. I loved them. Mm-hmm. My relationships. I was in a job. I was good and felt meaning, you know, in. And yeah. da da Bam. See ya. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful we have, we have the capacity to work with this? rather than just being taken down by it automatically. Amen. Yeah. You know, may this make us better men. I, I can really sense the, the sweetness and the goodness and the humility or whatever that is, the grace that's coming out of you in your books, your writings, and when, I, when I've spoken yeah. to you. it's. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of men's work is to do with letting this crack open without yeah. losing our guts or our power or boundaries, but there's an alignment of head, heart, guts, balls, full-blooded alignment. And the heart is right at the core of it. I do men's groups. I see, I see as many tears in the men's groups as in the women's groups, really deep crying. Once the shame level has been worked with and cut through, and a lot of grief, so much grief. And beauty. Is there, is there a theme you see to the grief in the men's groups? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with being out of, being out of touch with who they are for so long, mm. especially emotionally where they just have, they allow themselves a little bit of anger in the form of aggression. Any shame that arises is quickly converted into aggression or emotional dissociation. There's a, there's an emotional emptiness and they can feel that when they get in touch with a boy part of them and they go regress somewhat Oh, now I can feel, this is what my wife's talking about. Now I can cry hard. Now I can express my anger in a way that's passionate, fiery, but has some heart in it. That's a big thing. When a man can get angry, and include his heart and his anger. So if we're friends and I'm pissed at you, maybe I'm pissed at something, I'm quite intense. If I involve my heart, you're going to feel safer with me than if I don't. You won't feel like I'm attacking you. I'm just underlining something emphatically, but I'm still, I'm still with you. Mm-hmm. And then anger becomes a resource in relationship. It becomes a sacred gift in some ways, rather than being this problem of potential aggression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And that's a distinctive feature you notice. You, you said you worked with both men's and women's groups yeah. in some ways or had familiarity, but I imagine that is much more distinctively male issue, getting in touch with those those. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with, with uh, sexuality, too. A lot of men have incredible shame around their porn habits. Mm-hmm. What I teach them is not to make it wrong. I teach them how to grow it. I show them the dysfunction of it. And I'll say to a man, tell me your favorite erotic fantasy. One that gets you the most heated and turned on. Then I will take away the erotic elements and say, what's left? And what's left is almost always the early life conditioning that's not been faced. And that ties Mm. into why porn is such a pull. But once the shame around that's cut through, then then the tears can come. Then they're they're able to feel. Because in the women's groups, the main topics are often voice, getting their voice back, having anger, and learning that being direct does not mean you're not feminine. Some of them go, oh, I'm lost in my masculine because I'm being direct. Say, no, that's bullshit. That's some t- I don't tr- trust that teaching at all. You're just being direct and you're being forceful and you have boundaries. So you don't have to use your sexuality to control a situation. You can have firm boundaries that you breathe energy into and you reinforce with your anger. Yeah. And this issue around pornography has become such a major issue for so many men, particularly, unfortunately, young males t- too, because oh, yeah. that's the first exposure they have to sexuality in many cases. And as a physician, it used to be someone came in with erectile dysfunction. The first thing you asked, okay, well, do you have hypertension? Do you have diabetes, mm-hmm. etc.? Now the first <laughs> question is, do you have much porn do you yeah. watch? Yeah. And so we have a, you know, and, and this, of course, is the biggest commercial thing on the internet mm-hmm. is pornography. And we're just probably at the tip of the iceberg because with virtual reality, we're going to see a whole nother level of inter- internet addiction in general and pornography addiction in, in particular. Yeah, there's already VR pornography, mm. I've been told. Uh, we're interested in the technology to, as a meditative tool, transformational tool. And I've talked to a lot of people in the last few years. And yeah, that's a big thing. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to advertise. I don't know how to get there and I've never seen it. But, you know, it follows that that would be part of it. And as, as the technology gets more more powerful. And and I would also say that probably a lot of uh, young women and girls get their first taste of sexuality by looking at pornography. I mean, their curiosity is there. It's, you know, and so what does that say to them? You know, the young girls that see this stuff, they may not be addicted to it like men, some may be, and I don't know, but what does it tell them about what sexuality is about? I have no idea. It's just a question I'm putting out. I think it's an epidemic. The first step, though, I've taught so many men, the first step to working with, with, for me, is to say to them, when you have the urge to use porn, masturbate to it, et cetera, stop, ask yourself, what am I feeling? Not lust, because lust is not so much a feeling, but what is going on emotionally? And they almost always will say loneliness, sadness, frustration, some sort of irritant in the nervous system. And masturbation was originally a tool that could relieve them of that very quickly when they're a young teen. And now it becomes a go-to mechanism. So when you do that, you tune into the loneliness, the hurt, the pain. I'll say, sit with that for four or five minutes, breathe with it. If you still want to masturbate afterwards, go ahead, but do it with the imagery. And most men will find it shifts things very quickly for them because they reconnect with the younger them, the who they were before they first got into porn. They didn't have porn as an, a way, an outlet for their distress as a child or a young boy or a young teen. And there's a sense of agency in that that's very appealing to them. Suddenly, uh, here I am. I don't have to go along with this. 
I have a chapter in the To Be a Man book called Taking Charge of Your Charge, especially for men. You can't often help the charge we have in a split second with, say, a woman moving at a certain angle, a certain posture. But what we do in the succeeding seconds is very important. Do we feed that? Do we look through it? Do we illuminate? Do we self-reflect? Or do we just want to act it out and indulge it? And uh, Robert, I want to just generalize a point you're making here about when that urge to use pornography comes up, taking a moment to touch into the experience. And it's very reminiscent of the Alcoholics Anonymous aphorism of using using the mnemonic HALT check in for am I hungry, angry, Hmm. anxious, lonely, or tired? And, you know, any of those things can be just be be temporarily overwhelming or Mm -hmm. bring us into whatever our default way of avoiding our painful emotions is. Yeah, yeah. I also often ask men, what what type of porn do you enjoy the most? I want to know the type and then I, then I can tie that into their conditioning what they're want, what they're trying to act out through it but all, all based with some there's some healthy dose of self-reflection there and also to suggest if you start masturbating again do it without imagery just do it with the sensation go slower tune in and see how see how see if the, how strong the pull is or not treat it as an experiment and also to know if you're using porn and you have a partner, there's a triangle. There's you, the partner, and the porn. And a man can be completely monogamous, seemingly faithful to his wife, and still have a pornographic mindset that he acts out in very subtle ways. Hmm. So it's a big topic. Yeah, and certainly one of the topics we have time, and I just want to point to a couple of the interventions you mentioned there, which are so universally therapeutic. One is... Just drop into experience, mm-hmm. literal experience of the moment, because usually we're a couple of, at least a couple of mental layers divorced from our experience, mm-hmm. lost in in both imagery, association, fantasy, yeah. thoughts, beliefs, etc. And for so many psychological issues and dysfunctions and spiritual ones too, the answer is cut through the fantasy into the actual experience. And experience is innately therapeutic and healing. You know, when we actually get in touch with our experience, we find that it tends to be, it tends to be healing because it undercuts the conditioning. It tends to be give us guidance as to what's appropriate in each and every moment because we, we, that's just part of our, the experience that's available to us in, in every moment. And it's self-transcending because the actual experience transcends so much of what uh, limits us in any moment. I want to bring in the, the concept of intimacy here because if with intimacy, you get very close the person, the state of mind, this, this, this physical state you're in, but you don't fuse with it. There's a subtle distance. And that, that allows for more clarity. So my path, I would say, is being coming intimate with all that I am, cultivating intimacy with all that I am, all that is. And that creates that small but healthy distance from what I'm observing. So I can keep it in focus. I can read it more clearly. And that's something that came out of the five methoxy experiences. I, I started to feel far more intimate with life, my experience, everything. I got more, and I wasn't, trying to be close. It just, I just felt closer and closer and closer. 
and more curious, like a little kid turning over stones in the garden. I'm curious, what's underneath this rock right here? What what do I detect in myself here? Here's something I, that tends to I tend to stay out of touch with myself. Maybe my maybe my capacity for violence. What's it look like? What's my history with it? How well do I know? It's, it's becoming intimate with what's in my shadow. All the things I've tended to keep out of sight to varying degrees. Yeah, and I want to emphasize, just really reinforce the importance of what you're saying there, Robert, because curiosity is such a it's such a healthy, beneficial attitude. And I'm trying to realizing, trying to think of any in any of the classic contemplative traditions it's emphasized. I guess the closest I can think of is the Buddhist mindfulness emphasis on investigation, on exploration. But the prior attitude to that is curiosity. And curiosity is is so beneficial in many ways. First, it takes us into the experience. And second is it's, it inhibits reactions like fear or avoidance, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And it brings us directly, as we we're talking about before, into our experience and therapeutic potentials of that direct experience has. Yeah, yeah. I have a big yes for curiosity. I do, I do a prayer <laughs> before I start work. I just go, may I be compassionate, loving, present, patient, curious, kind, mm. and operating at an optimal skill level at every moment in this session and all upcoming work for the rest of my life. I do that. I like doing that. It settles me. But the curiosity is just as important as the other factors. Because when I'm working with someone or a group, if I'm curious, I don't get bored. I don't get restless. I don't impose my agendas on a direction someone's work is taking. I'm curious. Well, what if we try this? What if we try that? What if I just can your left eye and compare it to your right eye? What happens? And I don't know because implicit in that is a sense of not knowing and not, not yeah. in terms of everyday ignorance, but in, in a spiritual sense. And that's why my trained therapists, I teach them how to cultivate that when they're working with someone face to face, not to have a plan or an agenda, just see what happens and, and be intuitive, flow with When you do that, it completely opens up in many, many cases, the person that you're talking to. Somebody is just reflecting right there, and there's that energy. They're really interested, you know, in some kind of compassionate way. And if I have any ability to the counselor or therapist, it's been my ability to listen well. And I think it's helped in the podcast too career. Just that it's just so essential, and it opens up people to their own selves in ways that perhaps, you know. I was thinking of dream work where I'm so damn curious. And I have the group often say, what do you pick up on this person's dream? What's your intuitions? And I'll do my work with them. But I'm curious. It's like a portal is opened. And if I'm not curious, they'll feel me just being professional by not being more than professional. I'm not like right in there. I really want to know. I'm really curious. What, what color was that? When you flew, what's, what side were you leaning more toward or whatever it was? There's that. And I also like what goes along with the curiosity for me is not what I'm winging it here is innocence, not naive innocence like a childhood, but an innocence that's more awakened, but still it's full of wonder. That's so when I plug in deeply to the divine, I feel that I'm curious. I'm innocent. It's an innocence. I'm not jaded by my experience. That's another thing in the five methoxy, but jam jolt me out of my, all a sense of having already arrived, and there I am, a child again, hurting, crazy, but still there. Yeah, so much, so much power in that combination of curiosity and the 
the recognition of bottomless mystery somehow that mm, infinite. You know, there's always more, there's always another level. There's I feel like nothing the- to say that, Roger. I, mean, <laughs> I, I share that light because it's, I mean, intimacy with the mystery. My wife has, a, as a singer, one of her chants is I open to the mystery, repeated mm. over, you know, And I feel like I open to the mystery and the closer I get to it, guess what? It's even more mysterious. Yeah. Instead yeah. of trying to figure the damn thing out, I'm here to affirm it. And, <laughs> it. and, and since we, we're here to embody it, I mean, when I think of my own dying and death, I imagine just le- opening to the mystery 100%, letting go of all my ideas, knowledge, things I might suspect could happen when I'm dying or at death. Here's the mystery. And we get, we get to become intimate with as we need, want to. And there's mm-hmm. no end to it. Like you said, it's bottomless, edgeless, and wow. And the part of the mystery that wants to figure it out is still part of the mystery. <laughs> it's still there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah beautifully, beautifully said, yes. And you remind me of, of Ramdas, who, of course, spent so much of his life working with the dying and, and exploring it. And uh, he had a beautiful line, said, death is the ultimate mystery. Uh-huh. And, yeah, it sounds like he, you're- he used to say when he woke up in the morning, he was going to be with someone who's dying. He says, he, I couldn't wait to get in there. I get <laughs> to be with someone who's dying today. It turned him on in a good way. To, I, I get to be in the presence of, of deep truth, mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, brothers and sisters, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. This was just part one. Stay tuned to part two. It's coming and it's really good. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John Roger and the Deep Transformation Team.